0: take your copy of God's Word and turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to be headed to Titus, um, but I wanted to do a one-off that would I thought was good. I mean, not that I think the sermon's good. I thought the passage was good. And <laughs> the sermon's yet to be seen. I might think it's good. I most likely won't, knowing my own critical spirit of my own preaching. Zephaniah chapter 3, I hear more pages turning than normal. I suspect it's because it's one of the little books in the middle. Chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, that not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. That time I will bring you in, the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask your blessing You've spoken to us by the reading of your word. Would you now speak to us in its preaching? For Christ's sake, amen. <clears throat> I don't know if you saw the story this week, but in the continuing list of horrors of technology, a report coming out of, I think it was Australia, it was an Australian scientist that first reported it. Uh, they did a spectacular um, uh, work in a lab, uh, it was announced this week, where they took human brain cells and mixed them with mouse stem cells to grow a brain in a lab, which they then attached to mouse muscles, which they then attached to a 1970s edition of the video game Pong to see what would happen. And this lab-grown brain of human brain cells grown in mouse organs, or cells, I guess, learned how to play Pong in five minutes and is still continuing to play Pong as much as possible. It's amazing kind of this moment in, in world history because we figured out how now to take human intellect... And to mix it it with the animal kingdom and kind of cutting-edge technology is really excited and looking forward to uh, ultimately kind of, you know, not probably in my lifetime, but in my children's lifetime, replacing our laptops with like organic laptops where they're actually alive because they're able to use human brains, lab-grown human brains in order to compute because our brains are more powerful than any computer mankind's ever made so why not make a new one? I mean, it doesn't work if it's human entirely, so let's mix it with mouse and maybe that'll work. And it's interesting because the article that I first read this in, it's been kind of circulating the last couple of days uh, with a bit more wider spread, but the first article I read it in was beginning to kind of ask the question of saying, look, guys, this is not a good thing. These are the horrors that technology, you know, the science fiction of the 50s warned us of, where we're beginning to have to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human if we can now grow human organs in a lab and mix them with other animals and then have those organs perform services and deeds for us? I mean, you can imagine how this will go. You go get an x-ray into the future, and uh, instead of having a radiologist that checks it, they have some lab-grown brain that's been trained how to read x-rays that read your x-ray, that does your proofreading for your papers, that does large mathematic computations. What does it mean to be human? The question I suspect is going to get increasingly complicated for us to answer. I mentioned it last week in Sunday school. They're already working in the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, They're already working on taking human organs and growing them in other animals' bodies or in other labs. uh, Growing them with kind of neutral cells to take your stem cells to place into them so that you can have a organ transplant from a lab-grown organ of your own. Or worse yet, where they're making embryos. To put your stem cells into uh, to then harvest your own organs from an embryo that's been grown in a lab. Increasingly, we're watching a kind of technological crisis happen where we're seeing kind of all the things that historically have been used to note and give meaning and value as humans, we're watching them just kind of disappear. Marriage, one of those things that's been used to give meaning and value has been kind of destroyed in America. First marriages, divorce now at what, 60, 65 percent. Divorce rate second marriages is what, 85, 90 percent. I forget the numbers exactly. Exactly. We've stopped having children as a nation, our birth rates tanking. We're watching major European nations and East Asian nations have already tipped below uh, the recovery point. We're expecting to see Italy and Japan in major national crisis in the next 50 to 60 years because there won't be enough people to sustain their own economy, likely with it collapsing on itself. work has become increasingly driven by technology, increasingly remote, and increasingly unfulfilling, but with increasing numbers of hours. We live in, top to bottom, the wealthiest country in human history. And the wealth that people thought the good life would make me happy, that would give me pleasure, that would make me feel good about myself, has been found to be a lie. And we've raised two generations of humans in this country that we've taught that they are centered to the universe, that they're the most special thing in the universe, and they're beginning to realize that actually they're just like everybody else, and the lie is beginning to ring hollow. We have a nation that is increasingly beginning to finally be honest and ask the question, what is the point of all of it? Finally, finally, you've left as a nation the realm of insanity and are beginning to ask the most important question, the one question that actually matters. What's the point? What's the point of being human, what's the point of being alive? What's the point of a church? What's the point of a family? What's the point of being a person at all? What's the point? The reason why I wanted to do this one-off sermon was largely so that we could just contemplate, excuse me, a little bit of how Zephaniah 3 frames out that conversation of what does it mean to be human? Why does, why, why does any of this matter? What's the point of being alive? Why not just be dead? It's better off, isn't it? No, it's not better off yet. There's a purpose here. Now, Zephaniah's book is extremely uh, interesting. Zephaniah is the great-great-grandson of the king, King Hezekiah. He's most likely been raised inside the royal court and is uh, laboring In a time in Israel's history where the northern kingdom has already been invaded by Assyria, but the southern kingdom has not yet. We don't have the exact uh, years that he's ministering, but that's roughly somewhere between 722 and 586 in that range. And what he's writing about largely is the failures of leadership at the national level. As he's, again, great-great-grandson to the king, he's most likely spent his time in the court, and so he's been able to watch the failures of the nation, the religious and uh, civil governments, as he's grown up in their midst. And so he writes this very short but very pointed book decrying their failings, but specifically within the context, kind of the the, um, contradiction, the contrast, of their failings, and the judgment day. The end of time, the day that everything changes, the the day where time as we know it ends, the day where this created order as we know it ends, the day where sin is judged, the day where everything changes. Now, we've come to understand as kind of Further history has been written. We've gotten the rest of uh, the Bible, the New Testament particularly, that what Zephaniah is doing is uh, what today kind of modern scholarship calls, calls the prophetic perspective. He's kind of writing, looking into the future And from his perspective, looking into the future, he's looking kind of uh, from roughly again, 722 to 586 BC, looking down kind of the the timeline of history. And so he sees uh, the arrival of Christ, the cross, and the end of time kind of all at the same time. And so he's mixing all three of these things in one go. The arrival of Christ, the cross, and the second coming kind of all blending together. So much so that you'll get to see in this passage the verb tenses change, and the English standard does a very good job of capturing it. So the way that we're going to talk about this is the kind of standard um, biblical categories, often talked about in Reformed theology, of already not yet. That God is going to be making promises and describing what He's doing inside creation for His people, and these things are already true, but they're not yet full. Already true, but not yet full. All right. So, Zephaniah three verses fourteen through twenty-two begin with a profound, extreme, obvious, and very clear explanation as to what the task of the people of God is to be. What, what are we? What are we supposed to be about? How are our lives supposed to be spent? Now, this isn't saying that you shouldn't be about having a family and raising children. It's not saying you can't be about working a job and having income. He's not saying that we shouldn't be about other good things. But the central and primary focus of human existence is verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Four verbs, all in the imperative. Sing, shout, rejoice, exult all four with kind of variations on a theme, uh, slightly different kind of nuances to the idea of praise. Our existence, our function in this place is to be people that are busy with the praise of God. It's interesting that really those are the only two parts kind of connected here, isn't it? You have these commands to praise, but then our identity as those people that do praise. Sing, daughters of Zion, that's people of God. Rejoice and exult, daughters of Zion. We are to be those creatures that are constantly filled with praise in our mouths for the work of and Word of God. Now, this is a concept that many of us are familiar with. So, you're like, really, you took a one-off sermon to preach this out of all the things you could. It's kind of obvious, Michael, this is one of the things that we're busy about. We, yeah, yeah, that's true, but I'll be completely candid that in kind of the life cycle of this church, we've entered into a season of great physical health, challenges, right? We've had we've had tremendous amount of number of cases of cancer in the last 12, 13, 14 months, physical difficulties, some folks rather ill with a very um, mysterious virus that's gone through in the last couple of years. We've had an extended season of difficulty as a church in that regard. We've had some that have had tremendous difficulty with their jobs, some that have tremendous difficulty with their families. Some that have been paralyzed by grief or physical pain that is blinding to the point where it becomes the kind of sole focus of life, all-consuming and all-absorbing. We've been a church that's grown and have experienced so many of God's blessings in the midst of a time in which many have not felt that. And the natural temptation for us as humans is to distraction, to be captured by the glittery and sparkly and flashy thing that moves over here, or over here, or up there, or over there, and to pull us away from a a kind of all-consuming focus on praising the living and true God. Now, I'm lovingly, hopefully gently, I'm going to try, and hopefully faithfully, call some of us out in the room. But some of us in the room have honestly, friends, we've gotten so distracted that we know this to be true intellectually, but it hasn't been kind of our beating heart in a little while. Some of us in the room have been preoccupied with medical things or preoccupied with job things or preoccupied with hurting things or preoccupied with happy things or honestly just distracted by the myriad of distractions that our current culture has to offer, and we've lost the focus. Sing, shout, rejoice, and exult. In fact, actually, some of us in the room, if we're going to be honest, probably resonate a little bit more with that author of Hebrews, or we could say maybe our heart has grown a little bit dull. Maybe it feels a a little bit hard. Maybe our love has drifted away just a little, and we just feel perhaps spiritually tired. Now, I know we've got lots in the room that are physically tired and some for very, very good reasons. But I suspect we have probably, honestly, more people in the room that are spiritually tired. Where we've kind of lost the focus and the exhaustion, the burnout, the weariness that is so common has followed Part of why I love this passage and why I wanted to come here is because you do have this incredibly pointed command at the beginning that your life is to be a life consumed with praising the triune God. But God loves us so much that He doesn't give the command without immediately following it with a whole bunch of reasons to fuel that worship. A whole bunch of reasons to fuel that praise, to kind of be the gasoline to get the car moving, to get the engine firing. Verse 15… The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. Now, enemies are going to show up in kind of two fashions here, and we're going to talk about them separately. The first part that we're going to see is connected to the judgment that you have these people here, the people of God here, have enemies that are at this point in the the psalm. We're not, or I mean, the passage, not talking about their destruction, but are actively judging, condemning, damning, bad-mouthing, gossiping, or destroying behind the scenes the people of God. This is a a relationship in which God's people are interacting with their enemies and those around them are are speaking ill of them. Those around them are, again, judging them or or condemning them or actively uh, making them look ill or bad or whatever else there could be. And this is an interesting thing because this is, I think, one of those parts that in much of Christian life, we downplay the significance of this. Like, we talk about each other, like we talk to each other and say, well, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And then we immediately go and let words hurt us constantly. It's like, well, why did we say that if we didn't mean it or believe it or in any fashion try to implement it? And it's interesting because what God's promise here is, and we get this already not yet sense, is it's delivered in the past tense. Look, the Lord is so at work. He's so faithful to his people. He's so active and aggressive in taking care of who you are and you being his child. It doesn't matter what they say. The Lord loves you. He knows you. He he cares for you. They can think whatever they want to think. He thinks you're His beloved child. They can think ill of you. They can speak ill of you. They can, in fact, even go one step further, and this is where you see kind of part two of the enemies. Verses 18 and 19. These enemies have actually begun to actively oppose the people of God. Again, this is between 722 when the northern kingdom is invaded and 586 when the southern kingdom is invaded. We think this is probably at a time where um, some of the Assyrians are trying to influence the southern kingdom. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. Now, what's being talked about here is their regular um, routine of worship. The uh, old uh, ancient Israel, the Old Testament, their worship structure was very routine. It was created around a rhythm. You had daily offerings, you had weekly offerings, you had monthly offerings, and then you had annual kind of special event offerings. But the entirety of the the Old Testament Jewish experience was one of rhythm and flow. And what's happening now is that these enemies are, have not just badmouthed the people of God, not just kind of judged them and said, you know, you're the problem, but they've gone one step further and they've begun to interfere with the rhythm and flow of the worship of God. The Jews, those that loved the Lord in this time, were having a, a difficult time following the Lord and obeying Him, being faithful in their deeds of service. I will gather those of you that mourn for the festival, the festival being a good thing, part of the worship of God, and they're grieving over how it's been disrupted so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Now we've gone into future tense. Behold, at that time, I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. He's defending his people. He's watching over them, guarding them, and keeping them both now already in some sense, but not yet fully brought to light. We talked about this in Sunday school today with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is fully God and is currently fully man. He stepped inside humanity into the womb of a woman born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died, was crucified, and buried. As part of his ministry in his time, it was a ministry of humiliation where he was belittled and rejected and even ultimately murdered. He was killed. He he died himself on the cross, gave up his spirit, but unjustly so. But in the second coming, that's not the case. Whereas in the first coming, he came in humility. He stepped inside the womb of a very poor, probably young teenage Jewish girl in the middle of absolute nowhere, in an insignificant place, in an insignificant culture, in an insignificant little woman to become the most significant person that's ever lived. But when he comes the second time, it's in glory. And it's in power. And it's with truth and knowledge and love in such a way that all the deeds done in darkness and in silence and deeds done thought, when people thought they were hidden away where no one would ever know, would be made obvious deeds done in darkness brought into light, deeds of persecution done against the people of God being brought even into the light, vindicating God's people. Friends, some of you I know are suffering. Some of you are suffering at the hands of relationships that, that test your, your spiritual metal, so to speak, It tests your ability to not go insane because you're like, this relationship is making me crazy. The way that they're acting or they're sinning against me or they're hurting me or I just can't bear with it. I I just, it feels like my brain's going to tear itself apart. And I love how the Lord is promising grieve for the right things. Grieve for the worship of God being disrupted. Grieve for the way that our hearts grow cold towards His love. Grieve for the way that we grow affectionate for sin instead of the Savior. Grieve for those things, the other things the Lord will take care of. Because He will defend you now and He will defend you then. He's already protecting His people but not yet fully for third whatever it is i lost my numbers verse 19 the end of it and i will change their shame into praise renown in all the earth that's an amazing statement God's people at this time were indeed a people filled with shame. The northern kingdom had been so unfaithful that God had judged them and basically wiped them off the map. You would have thought the southern kingdom would have learned from that, but they're acting just as much the fool by and large, except for a couple of exceptions, very likely the tail end of one of those. God's people have, rather than learned and improved, have continued to act the fool. And as a result, they've had God's discipline placed upon them. They've been destroyed in the northern kingdom. They're about to be destroyed in the southern kingdom. They have the shame of sin marking them. It's their sin, it's their shame. In such a way, even that others would be able to look at them and say, Ha ha ha, look at what they did. Look at those people. They're the bad people. Look at them. They they said that they worshiped God, but then they acted that way. What hypocrites. What fools. What idiots. How dare they? How dare they? And I love the the fact that the Lord acknowledges that, yes, His people are oftentimes quite foolish. It's very comforting for me. Look at my own life. Look at how I've made it to this day. It's not always been marked by brilliance and wonder, oftentimes marked by God's providence working it out in what seemed like dumb luck of Him taking care of a fool. But interestingly, in those moments where it seems like our sin has come to define us, where it seems like our sin has kind of overwhelmed us, it's overshadowed us, where we can't see past the shame. I will change their shame into praise. Their failings become the very reason for glorifying God. Our failings become, in some sense, the song that we sing, praising God for forgiveness, that the blood of Jesus covers even that, that Jesus saves sinners like me. That he gives his mercy freely because I would never have had the wisdom to take it. And if it had cost me anything, I wouldn't have paid it. That God's mercy is overwhelming. I've done enough pastoral counseling to know that there are many in the room that struggle with shame. I think it's probably endemic to the the human condition, but I suspect that it's further heightened again by the way that technology works in our minds. But so many, so many, have our daily existence, have our relationships, have our courage shaped or destroyed by shame. Shame. And friends, if you're clinging to it, you need to repent. Because interestingly, God's not clinging to it. I will change their shame into praise. And in fact, actually, it will become a source of their fame in all the earth. Because when Jesus said, it's finished on the cross, he meant it. (laughs) He wasn't being like, hyperbolic. It wasn't exaggerating. Like, well, I mean, it's mostly finished. Like, I am mostly done. It's not like many of our parents talking with kids. When, Have you done your homework? Well, yeah, it's finished. It's not finished. It's barely started. No, that's not how redemption works. It's finished. And friends, if you cling to your shame in this regard, repent Repent of the sin that you did to earn that shame, then repent of the shame and flee to Jesus. That your shame would become not your paralyzing and self-destructive idolatry, but instead freedom in Christ. Last reason, quickly. Verse 20 I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Your your blessings will be so many that everybody will notice. And this this is one of those areas where the already not yet is so abundantly clear. We understand the the not yet part at the the last day at the second coming where it's made abundantly clear that those that do not know the Lord are destroyed forever, and we grieve for that, and those that love Him receive fullness of life forever and ever. Amen. But even now, again, as we watch a world that is actively self-destructing, a world that's busy nuking every relationship, every human relationship that exists, trying to redefine those things that cannot be redefined, changing definitions to embrace insanity. And here in God's midst, we have every blessing. We have hope in a world that has no hope We can have peace in a world that knows no peace. We can have joy in a world that fosters discontentment. We can have truth and stability in a world that nurtures lies. We can have identity in a world that fosters confusion. We could have feet that are planted on the solid rock of Jesus Christ instead of a world of shifting sands and slippery slopes. I will restore your fortunes. You see, sometimes I think what happens, and the Bible is, I think, very clear about this, we just lose focus for a little bit And we drift, and our hearts go hard, and our hearts grow dull. And we lose that first love, and it begins to burn a little bit less brightly. And here, interestingly, we have God kind of challenging that, commanding, go praise Him, go praise Him, go praise Him. Why? Well, why should I praise Him? Because he gets rid of those judgments, because he deals with our enemies, because he deals with our shame, because he blesses us in ways that we cannot even imagine. But the center focus point of this psalm, or I mean not this psalm, this passage is the mechanism that he uses to do those things. There's one recurring idea that I've kind of quickly skipped over. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's already cleared away your enemies. Why? How? What's the mechanism that he does this? The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You'll never fear evil again. Verse 16, you don't have to be afraid. On the day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Why? Why? What's the mechanism for me getting rid of fear, for me dealing with shame? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. Bring you into where? (laughs) Into my presence because I am in your midst. It's intriguing how God, all of these blessings God gives, the mechanism that he uses to give is his very presence. He doesn't separate his blessings from himself. It's not like he's, you know, a dad who pulls out the wallet, hands the family credit card and says, go have a good time, I'll see you in six months. He blesses by being with us, by walking beside us. By even the Spirit indwelling us. It's why, honestly, you can see the math. We're supposed to praise. Why are we supposed to praise? All of these reasons, all of these reasons have meaning and actually take place because God himself is with us. For many of us, we've lost the praise. Why have we lost the praise? Because we've lost sight of the focus. And why have we lost focus on all of these reasons and these blessings? Because we've lost focus on the fact that our God lives with us That he's with us now. That when you're sad, he's with you. That when you're happy, he's with you. That when you're upset, he has not left you nor forsaken you. When you are grieving, he grieves with you. That when you suffer sickness, when you're in the hospital, he goes with you. He's in our midst. He's in our midst. And He works. In fact, actually, if you get to see it, the I have or I will is kind of really actually the primary grammatical construction in this section. Verse 15, the Lord has done this. The Lord is in your midst. Verse 17, the Lord is in your midst. Verse 17, He will... This is where it starts. He will, he will, he will, I will, verse 18, I will, verse 19, I will, I will, I will, verse 20, I will. I, God is the one who's going to do it. He's promised, he's in our midst. He's going to accomplish his work. And you think, well, I mean, he has to, right? I mean, he's God. He has to, I guess. Verse 17, I think, gives one of the most staggering pictures of the Lord's relationship with his people anywhere in the Bible. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. Now, what is it like for God, from God's perspective, what is it like for him to be with me? Right? Is he grumpy because I'm, uh, you know, I'm not pleasant and I'm grumpy and I'm angry? Or is, is he sad? Is he like really regretting this decision? What is his relationship with his children like? He will rejoice over you with gladness. That word there is the, 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 like the victor's battle cry. If you watched a very significant football game last night uh, when um, they kicked the game-winning field goal and you got to see people just absolutely like lose their mind before they, you know. Tore the goalpost down, carried them out of the stadium, and then dumped them in the river uh, half a half mile away. That's the verb that's kind of being used here. That's the concept is that the Lord is like celebrating over his people. Like this is him like battle cry, cheering over his people. He's so victorious. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you. So it's not just all loud and, and boisterous, but he'll also quiet you, take care of you in the fragile moments when you're very, very fragile and tender. He's there with you. And then I love the last one. He will exult over you with loud singing. Some of you have that person in your home or in your life or have in the past who is so excited and happy usually at one of those weird moments in life that they either sang or whistled constantly, right? Some of you, it was that person who woke up at like 5.45 in the morning and they popped out of bed so excited. They start whistling and you're like, there's gonna be a homicide in my home. Others, you have that person who's so happy when they get in the shower, they just can't help but sing. And so it's just you know, a litany of you know, three quarters of each song that they can't remember being sung over and over and over again at max volume because there's so much joy and delight. It's mind-boggling to think that because we are his children, he's loved us, that that's the Lord with us. Now again he's not a man in the same way that we are doesn't have body like men but to think of like the Lord over breakfast whistling with joy over us just singing at the top of his lungs because he's so happy that he is our father and we are his children what a cool thought I'm going to end with this. Just three quick applications. One, the Lord sets the stage in singing. He sings over us with joy. Let's make sure we continue singing back to Him similarly. Historically, this body's done a great job. This is not a scold. This is a, yay, you have done good, keep it up. Sing with full voice, even if you're bad. I mean, I'll join you in that one most days, because the Lord loves us and He sings over us. Secondly, is you have to have active faith. Meaning, belief is not one of those things that tends to happen by accident. It's not one of those things that you just wake up. Most of us, some of us do this, but most of us don't wake up one day and realize I'm just going to believe this to be true. Most of us either have to test a thing or we have to commit ourselves to believe a thing is true. So with these sorts of relationships and to think of God singing over us with love and God Himself rejoicing over us in Christ Jesus, we have to work to believe that. it's It's an active thing that has to be cultivated. And some of us are like, well, I just, I struggle to believe that God actually likes me. Well, do you ever think about that? No. I mean, do you ever read any Bible verses on that? Not really. Have you memorized anything that God says he loves his people? Well, no. When you're sad, do you ever quote those Bible verses? Well, no. Why? It's a surprise why you don't think he actually likes you because you're not listening to him. You're listening to yourself. If you find yourself today in that situation, friends, where you're having a hard time believing that God loves you like this, please stop listening to yourself or to those who are bringing condemnation against you. Listen to the Lord. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us because He's loved us before the foundation of the world. And then lastly, and this is really where I'd like to spend just a brief pointed comment. Many of us, again, appreciate his blessings, and some of us even are actively thankful for his command to praise because we like to do that, but struggle to pursue his presence. Remember, that's what he says, how how are these blessings given? It's not the family credit card handed out, they're given by his presence. How do I have joy? God has to be with me. How do I get faith by having the Spirit be with me? How do, how, how do I increase in hope when I'm just so depressed? I have the Spirit with me. How do I not get overwhelmed with the insanity of our world? I don't need to be overwhelmed. I have God with me. But again, so many of us do not spend nearly enough energy, if any at all, aside from Sunday morning, to do anything to be in His presence. Friends, it's worth it. Spend the energy to be in His presence. Spend the time to listen to His Word. Let the Lord speak to you. That's what the Bible is. So that you can understand His will, it's what Romans 12, 3 and 4 tells us. Listen to Him. He loves you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Jesus Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this amazing description of You singing over Your people. Would You now equip us to sing a sad song even back to You as we contemplate what Christ has done. Thank You for Jesus and Your Spirit. Amen.